Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. Someone sent me on Discord this article on Bustle that is titled, 11 Times When Being Honest Might Not Be Worth It. So in this article, their thesis is basically that it's okay to lie under certain circumstances. And although I would agree with that, I, as you know or might know from my previous episodes on this topic, I do think that our culture is becoming more normalized regarding deception and lying. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's just because I'm getting old and shaking my fist at a cloud, but I find that there's this culture in the United States of accepting lies, of accepting deception, and, and it obviously comes from our leaders and from the media sometimes, and I, I, I don't think it's a good trend. I think we should follow our kindergarten uh, teacher's advice and not lie. Honesty is important. I'm not an advocate necessarily of radical honesty, but I am a advocate for reasonable honesty. And I think that this article exhibits this cultural trend towards normalizing lying. So it, it, it goes through all these different circumstances in which it's okay to lie. They say, when someone you love has failed, it's okay to lie. When your significant other uh, is rejected from, well, okay, was your significant other rejected from grad school? Or did your friend get fired from her beloved job? During times like these, psychoanalyst Dr. Claudia Louise says they're probably beating themselves up and your honesty will just beat them down at those times. It's important to preserve a fragile ego. You need to remind the person and reassure them that everything is okay and that these things happen. Save the advice giving and honesty for when they feel better. All right. So what they're saying is that your, say your friend or your wife gets fired and they're probably beating themselves up. Yes, they probably are. But it says, your honesty will just beat them down. What does that mean? Your honesty will beat them down. If my wife was sad about losing a job, I wouldn't have advice for her. <laughs> I wouldn't tell her. I wouldn't say, hey, you know, you probably brought it on yourself. Or I wouldn't say, you know, you should, probably should try to learn. I, I, wouldn't, I would sit there and be with her as she vented about, and I would feel bad for her and I would have empathy for her. That would be my honest uh, response. So if, if your honest response, quote unquote, honest response, when someone is suffering is to give advice or to pile on criticism to them, then that's on you, my friend. You, you shouldn't be lying. I mean, I suppose lying in the short term maybe is okay. But what you got to do is figure out why you're so judgmental of other people when they're down. So in this situation, I, I don't understand it. Plus, let's say that my wife is sad. She just lost a job and I did have some advice. I might say something like, well, I know that you're going through a really tough time. And when you're ready for it, I do have some ideas as to how you could avoid that in the future. You know, I might say something like that. And that's being honest. And that takes their feelings into consideration, maybe, you know, depending on the situation. But this idea that when your friend is going through a hard time, you're supposed to fake your response to them, I do not recommend. This other one is a, another situation that a lot of people will say is okay to lie. When, someone, when someone's looking for your approval, it says, another time it's not worth it to be honest. When someone in your life is just looking for a compliment or reassurance and your true opinion might drag them down. This situation can arise in relationships, like when your significant other asks you if you had a good time at their friend's dinner and you totally didn't. You don't think there are any major problems, but it's just not your preference, says clinical sabotage. Anyway, my point is, is that uh, the point of this uh, paragraph is that, okay, you're out to dinner with your wife and some friends and your wife says, oh, did you like dinner? And you, and you know that if you give your true opinion, like, ah, I didn't actually like it that much, you're worried it's going to hurt your wife's feelings. So you're supposed to lie to your wife in a situation. That, that's, so, that's your advice here. Now, are there some circumstances where maybe it's the best situation? Eh, maybe. But as a general rule <laughs> to your significant other in particular, you should be honest. You should say, well, honestly, I didn't have that great of a time. And your significant other should not be dragged down by you by your real experience. So 
there's a lot of risk there, right? One, you're going to create a lot of distrust in the relationship. Two, you're setting a precedent of lying. Three, if you continue to lie, your spouse won't know your true feelings and won't know how to help you. And so will keep doing that thing that's annoying you and have no way that you are, that it's bothering you. And then when you blow because you have too much pent up anger or upsetness about it, you don't have anyone to blame except for yourself. So uh, this, this sort of situation, I don't understand. Okay. And this next one is just, uh, when sharing embarrassing stories from your past, let's say your partner asks a question about your past. Nine times out of 10, you should answer truthfully. But if you have a few embarrassing moments you're worried might change their opinion about you and they don't affect your relationship, it may be a good idea to keep them secret. As Kaplau Klapau says, maybe you tried drugs and had a bad experience, or maybe you got into an argument with your parents and cursed them out. Do you need to tell your current significant other all of this? Probably not. What? <laughs> And just think of these examples. Maybe you tried drugs and had a bad experience. Do you need to tell your spouse about this? Probably not. What? Why would you leave that out? Because it's embarrassing? I mean, that's this whole thesis of this paragraph is if it's embarrassing to you and you're, it says, if you have a few embarrassing moments and you're worried it might change their opinion about you, it's, it's a good idea to lie by omission. And so if you tried drugs and had a bad experience and that's embarrassing, why would that be embarrassing to you? You didn't mean to, but anyway, you're embarrassed by it and you, you don't need to tell your spouse about that. Well, you don't, yeah, you don't need to tell them, but lying by omission. And the other one is maybe you got into an argument with your parents and you cursed them out and then you're just going to leave that out. <laughs> now, I'm not saying you're supposed to confess every single dark secret you've ever done in your life to your spouse. But the way this is written, it is saying, well, if you get embarrassed about something and you don't want to change your spouse's opinion of you, then you should probably just not tell them everything about you. Essentially, lie by omission to manipulate your spouse to like you. Ugh. Anyway, I could go on and on on, on this article. There's some other points in this article that I think are fine, like when breaking up with someone, you don't necessarily want to tell them all the reasons why you're breaking up with them because it, it really might hurt them. So you might want to keep it more general or something like that. But even that is not necessarily great advice. But a lot of this is basically about it's okay to keep things to yourself, which is true. You know, if you have boundaries, if you're at work and you're going through a health problem and someone asks you, how is your health? And you'd just rather not get into it. There, there are ways of getting out of it without having to lie. You could just change the subject or you could say, you know what? It's, it's kind of a personal question. I just don't want to get into that. Like people ask me sometimes, uh, you know, podcast listeners will ask me questions and I don't want to answer them. I'm not going to just lie to people. I'm just going to say, I just tell them, look, I, I don't answer those questions. Those are too personal. And that's okay. You can have boundaries, but you don't have to lie to establish a boundary. You can just tell people that is a boundary that I don't want to cross. No offense. Just, just say that. All right. Let's go on to some emails up at that. All right. This email is from anonymous upper tier patron. They write, what is the relationship between eye contact and mental health conditions? Social etiquette has never come naturally to me. I grew up in an abusive household with little to no contact with people outside of the family unit. Most of what I learned about how to interact with people was from watching hours of television. My parents also seldom interacted with me. As an adult, my ex would tell me that he didn't like my vacant expression during our arguments. From my perspective, I was just taking in what he had to say and didn't know I was doing anything wrong. When a clinician notices there is something different about how a client holds their gaze, what does the process look like when zeroing in on a diagnosis? FYI, I've been in therapy for two years, so I'm not necessarily looking for a personal diagnosis. The question is more of a curiosity about what goes on in the mind of a clinician. End of email. Yeah, anonymous separate patient. Interesting question. Uh, I don't think I've been asked this before. So eye contact is a thing that a therapist will notice for sure. And for me, I can only speak for myself. When I see 
little eye contact, I uh, will, I'll note it for sure. And I might think, are they scared? Are they uncomfortable? Are they avoidant attached? You know, if you're avoidant or if you're having attachment insecurity, particularly avoidant, or even if you are disorganized and terrified, you might actually avert your gaze. There are also other conditions that might be indicated by uh, lack of eye contact. Autism, for example, sometimes will uh, exhibit people with autism will sometimes it not have eye contact, not always, but, but sometimes. Um, but really, uh, I'm, it would just be an initial red flag of something. You just think, okay, I'll just take note of that. And then I would go down a road of assessing the person normally. And if I was assessing you, I would suspect that I would conceptualize it the way that you're conceptualizing it, which is that you were raised in a neglecting, you know, emotionally and eye contact and neglecting household and abusive. And so you just don't really have a lot of practice and it might be harder for you because you didn't have maybe a lot of interacting when you were very young. And so you just don't have the same routines or habits that other people have. And you, you have the intent on the inside, but you might not be coming across with that intent because, you know, the, the thing that we do as humans when we're young is there's a lot of eye contact and interacting from basically day one, you know, almost day one for some kids uh, that they uh, are, you know, if you've ever had an infant, they want to look into your eyes and sometimes they just stare into your eyes. They're just like looking at you and then they look away and then they look back at your eyes and they look away and they look back at your eyes. And we clearly evolved some instinct as humans, particularly when we're infants, to, to do that. There's various reasons for that. One is to check in with the uh, caregiver to see if uh, we're okay, because we, we always look to our caregiver to know if everything is okay. Are we safe? You know, Because if, if our parent is calm and relaxed and smiling, then we feel okay. If our parent is upset and scared, then we feel scared, right? We also are, we have this instinct in all likelihood because we need to learn how to communicate because we're very social creatures. And so we need to pay attention a lot to what's happening in, you know, in other people's minds. And uh, we communicate uh, accidentally and on purpose a lot of what's going on in our, uh, in our mind through our eyes. We have all these tiny little muscles throughout our face and particularly around our eyes that communicate emotion and thought. So we're really focusing on that and trying to figure that out. And over time, we will express our emotions through our eyes, too. And people will pick up on that. And and there's this back and forth of communication through the expression in our face and in our eyes. And when we have that repeatedly, just basically just hours and hours every day from zero to five, then you just have a natural tendency to express yourself to other people when you're sad or when you're happy or when you're, you know, upset or scared or surprised. But if you're zero to five and no one is paying attention to your face, then you might not actually learn how to express your emotions that are going on the inside through your face. Because when you did proto expressions as an infant, no one responded to it. So you might've just given up. And so now when people are interacting with you or you're having a fight or something, you, you just have completely a blank face because you're, you don't have that, the, inst, the, the natural mechanism that will kick in to express yourself in the face. Anyway, uh, it's not really my area, but that's just me hypothesizing. But to answer your question, you know, what sort of diagnoses would I look for when I see lack of eye contact? I, I would... I would just note it and continue to assess in all the other ways that I assess. And sometimes I found that people just don't have a lot of eye contact for whatever reason. And that's fine. You know, some people just, you know, it's just not their thing. And uh, sometimes I kind of feel like I'm that way, honestly. (laughs) Um, as As a listener, I'm very much zeroing in on someone's eyes. 
But sometimes when I talk, I just like to stare out the window, even though I'm talking to someone. It's, and sometimes it's a bit of a narcissistic thing, honestly. If you're on the narcissistic spectrum, you kind of do that as well. Because when you're pontificating, you don't want to be interrupted by someone's face. <laughs> but sometimes I will do it so much when I'm talking to someone that they will actually turn around and look behind them because they think I'm looking at something. I, I'm talking one-on-one -on -one with someone, but I keep looking over their shoulder because when I speak, sometimes I just like to look away. And they're wondering, like, is he looking at something? <laughs> and then I feel bad because I feel like it, it's weird that I do that. All right, this next email is from a long-term patron that wants to remain anonymous. She writes, well, I'll summarize the beginning. She basically talks about having a very intense relationship with a man dating him and the relationship only lasted five weeks, but they fell deeply in love with each other. And she identifies that they probably were love bombing each other and rushing things with each other quite a bit, but she definitely felt like he was kind of pressuring her to move really quickly to commit to a relationship, you know, and move in together and all those kinds of things. Then uh, she gives us one example. He offered to come with me to a doctor's appointment that took place four days after we met in person. This felt both exciting and invasive. We agreed to meet at the clinic. I got there early, hoping to get checked in before he showed up so he would miss the appointment. I walked into the doctor's office on my own, and when the doctor and I were talking, I saw the door opening up, and there he was, just like that. No clinic personnel asked me if it was okay. All right, so just chiming in here. So on one hand, the anonymous patron is talking about how she was excited that he was going to come to the doctor's appointment, but also it felt invasive. And I will say it is a little unusual, but, you know, if you're super, super in love with someone, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, if someone, um, and that's the style of relationship that you want to have, I wouldn't be surprised if two people didn't agree to do that. But the fact that it felt invasive to you and you didn't say anything, right? Like it's exciting to you. You're thinking, ooh, you know, that, that sounds really nice to have my love there with me at the clinic. That'd be sort of nice to have a support and we could share together in that way. But the fact, but it also felt invasive. It also felt like you're moving too fast and, and that you didn't say anything and, and that you passively tried to get out of it instead of saying it directly to him, right? You tried to get there early so that you could get into the doctor's office without him instead of saying, to him, look, you know, I just kind of want to go by myself. And the fact that you felt like you couldn't say that or you shouldn't say that is a red flag for a problem later on. Uh, then you go on. We broke up in the middle of an explosive fight a couple weeks later. Again, the relationship was five weeks. So I went to therapy to process this. The therapist told me that he fits the profile of a domestic violence perpetrator. And this shocked me. About halfway into our third session, my therapist told me that she couldn't work with me anymore. She thinks that within a week or two, he will be back, and if he isn't, I will reach out to him. I asked her if she believed that he loved me, and she said, no, he does not love you. She said that perpetrators, there is no love involved, and it's all about power. She also thinks that my feelings for him are not about love. There is a lot about what she says that makes sense to me, but I am still experiencing some resistance. I felt and still feel lots of genuine love for him. Now I'm in a situation where I can only see this therapist if I stay broken up with him, which I think is what is going to happen. But I still don't like to feel like I am being told how to feel and treated almost like a child by a parent. End of email. Yeah, so there's a lot of things to unpack here. The first thing I'll say is that I obviously don't know what the therapist is seeing. So it's possible that if the therapist told me everything that she is seeing, I would agree with her approach to you. Uh, so I, I can't know. I'll say that I've never done anything like this before. If I had a client that I believed very firmly that they were in a love bombing situation and that they were heading into an abusive relationship, I wouldn't stop working with them. I mean, that seems like the worst thing you could do. I would probably say something. I'd say something, you know, I, I think there's, I, so the way that I tell, the way that I communicate to, to clients is, and I've said this before, is I try to download what's in my head into their head. Now, 
if I had a client where I was like, ooh, that's, this has some red flags here, I would just say that. I would say, you know, this has some red flags. But I would also know enough to say, I have no idea what this person is going to do. The two of you might have a wonderful life together. I don't know. Maybe you guys are just super, super in love and you're just like super, super romantic with each other. And he will never harm you. I don't know. But I'll tell you, there are some red flags. One, he's invasive. He's love bombing. He's pressuring you to move fast. Those are pretty big indications of, of at very, you know, on one hand, you have domestic violence, but at the very least, you're looking at a situation where it could be extremely chaotic and um, lots of fighting. Does that mean it's not worth pursuing? No, I don't know. As a therapist, I can never know if someone's sustaining. I, I've talked with victims in a current DV relationship, and I still don't know if it's if they should leave or not. I will I will feel sometimes like they probably should, but that's not my call to make. I'll definitely tell clients, I'll say, you know, you don't deserve to be treated this way and what you're experiencing is abusive, but I would never say you can't be in this relationship if you're going to work with me. That seems opposite. But, you know, maybe I would agree if the therapist somehow told me what what's going through their mind. So, yeah, I you kind of laid it out well in the last sentence here. You know, I'm in a situation where I can only see this therapist if I stay broken up with him. You know, it doesn't seem right to me, right? You should be free to do what you want. And the therapist should be there to help you on the goals that you want help with. Now, I'll also say that given the anecdote you gave about the doctor's appointment, as I said, there's, you know, it might be good if your therapist does kind of draw this boundary with you, because it might be kind of a temporary uh, boundary that is protecting you from being abused so that you can continue to be to heal from the things you need to heal from so that you can detect domestic violence and avoid it. Uh, but I don't know, you know. Now, the other thing that I'll say is I would never tell someone that what they're describing isn't love. You know, I would never say, oh, that's not love. It's about power. Or, that's not love. You're just attracted to an abuser. Because what is love? We, you know, we recently did an episode on that. What, what is love? What, what does it mean? <laughs> you know, I, I, can't, I can't know what is in someone's heart. The other thing is you can fall in love with a DV perpetrator, and a DV perpetrator can love you and abuse you. And I don't like that that language that people... Now, again, it depends on your definition of love, right? And someone, your therapist might have a diff, different definition of love. But for my definition of love is it's really having a lot of affection for someone, spending a lot of time with them, being very attached to them. And you can absolutely be, you know, in love with a perpetrator uh, legitimately in, in my definition. And as I said, a perpetrator can also be in love with you. They can also abuse you. And I think it's a bit of a... A bit of a funny thing to claim that perpetrators can't be in love or love their victims. I think that it paints perpetrators as if they're some kind of alien from another planet that don't experience the same emotions that we do. Now, might their version of love, perpetrators, might their version of love be very harmful? Might they be... A, a little different with their love, sure. But, you know, to say that they don't experience love or attachment or human needs, I, I just, I don't, that's just not what I've found. But overall, anonymous patron who whom I've known for a long time, <laughs> I would say, you know, talk with your therapist about it. Just say, you know what, I if you want. I don't like to be told what to do. And I will say that <laughs> there's a weird parallel process going on right now where you you have two people telling you what to do and invading your life. You had a you had a, a you know a partner who was invading your life against your will and you didn't say anything and you tried to avoid it. And now you have a therapist who was invading your life and telling you what to do. So, you know, I, I would just bring that up and maybe your therapist would really enjoy a conversation like that. I don't know. But I don't want to interfere with your therapy. It sounds like it's going really well and you know, just just keep keep plodding away and eventually you'll probably get there. All right, let's take a break. Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month. 
and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy, and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. Let's do an OPP, an old patron praise for patrons that have been patrons all the way since April of 2018. So these people have stayed patrons this whole time. We have Janet from Brookline, Mass. We have Catherine from Berkeley, Michigan, Missouri, MI, is that Michigan? Uh, Rachel from Houston. We have Kelly from Massachusetts. We have Eduardo from Dallas. We have Kyle from Halifax, uh, Canada. We have Clover from Everett, Washington, just up the road for me. We got Molly. I think I've interacted with Molly before from Silver Springs, Maryland. Anna from Seattle. Anna from Seattle, Washington. We have Sarah, who is an annual, by the way, just a shout out to switch to annual, from Germany, it looks like. We have Beck from Pennsylvania. We have Kathy from Australia. We have Jill. Oh, my, my co-worker, my, another professor, Jill Forsberg. She became a patron way back when. Uh, she's also a student and supervisee of mine back in that day from good old Seattle. We have Marianne, who is an upper tier patron from Wapen, Wapon, uh, Wisconsin. Anya from, from Germany. We have Sarah and, from God knows where. And we have Kevin from Edmonton, Alberta. Thank you so much for being patrons for, for so long. All right. Anonymous upper tier patron writes in and says, can you talk about religious trauma with respect to complex PTSD? I'm currently in intensive treatment for complex PTSD and I'm realizing, and I'm realizing how much religious trauma has impacted me. My therapist is extremely supportive and helpful, but it seems like a relatively rare situation. And I would love to hear your opinions about how this can impact people. Can you share your thoughts on experiences on this? End of email. Yeah, religious trauma is interesting, and it can be extremely complex for people because on one hand, it is abusive, obviously, but on the other hand, it can also involve a lot of really wonderful things. It's similar to if you had, say, a older sibling or a parent who, lo- who you get a lot of love and attachment from who is also abusing you your religious organization, there can be a lot of really wonderful things and you're being abused in some way or traumatized. It also kind of messes, obviously, with your spiritual life that God or religion or congregations or spiritual euphoria is all kind of wrapped up in the trauma. You know, So the complex PTSD is uh, for some people to heal from trauma, they benefit by expanding their healthy spiritual life. But for people with religious trauma, the thing that can help them is the thing that they're triggered by in terms of their uh, trauma, in terms of their, their abuse. And it can be very pervasive to someone uh, in terms of what's the meaning of my life. Because religious, religions can, for some people, define everything that you're doing. It defines where you've come from, who you are, what you're supposed to do, uh, what what happens in the afterlife, um, what the what your identity is, and then to have all that uh, you know harm you, and then someday you reject all of it. Then who are you? What's the meaning of your life? Where do you go after you die? What are you supposed to do with yourself? And then you might have inklings of like, well, maybe. I could turn to spirituality and then you're like, but that's what harmed me in the past and how much, you know, it can be extremely complicated. And I've worked with clients with this and we would have very, very long, you know, in introspective conversations about this topic. It's very complicated. It sounds like you have a good therapist. And so keep going. All right. Anonymous or sorry, upper tier patron Gita. She writes in and says, 
I listened to your rerun on the episode about miscarriage grief, and I want to thank you for bringing up that topic again. Me and my partner have tried to get pregnant, but now we understand we will never become parents. Recently, my little sister told me she was pregnant, and all the hard feelings came back to me. Although I am happy for her and would like to share her joy, it's hard when at the same time I feel sorrow and that life is so unfair. As a result, I am not only feeling sad for not being able to have a family on my own, but I also have become less involved with the family I already have around me. Do you do you have any thoughts on how to manage or how to make it less hard? End of email. Yeah, I'm sorry you're going through that, Gita. It is, a, you know, a, a hard thing to go through. And it's one of those losses that is disenfranchised often when you talk about it, people be like, well, you know, just adopt or, yeah, you know, it's okay to not have kids. And uh, they don't really understand the profound loss that you're going through. So uh, what you're experiencing right now is it sounds like you went through some grief and then maybe you got a little better and then your sister got pregnant and then all of a sudden, boom, you were triggered in terms of your grief. This would be similar to if you you know, your parents die in a car accident and then you meet someone else's parents and it just triggers you. It's like, oh, it just reminds you, right? So when your sister has a child, it, it reminds you of it. And honestly, it's okay to be a little jealous, a little angry. It's like, why can my sister, who came from the same parents that I do, why could she have kids when I can't have kids, you know? And I don't know if it's, you know, the I don't know what the fertility issue is, but my, my point is, is that it's, totally normal to be jealous. It's totally normal to be angry. It's totally normal to be sad. It's totally normal to be triggered and to distance yourself. What I, what I recommend that you do though, is that you, you talk about it. Maybe even tell your sister, just be like, look, I'm so, so happy for you, but I have to tell you when, you know, because you're having a kid, it really just destroys me because I'm so jealous of you because I wanted to have this. I mean, the very least you, you should be talking with your spouse about it and your therapist about it. Because the worst thing that could happen is what is beginning to happen, which is you're distancing yourself from your family because of the triggering. You know, that would be like when you have a breakup or a divorce and you're very sad, you, you, you distance yourself from dating for the rest of your life because you're afraid of being triggered of a reminder of your past relationship. So it's normal to have a temporary feeling like that for sure, but you don't want that to be the solution. You don't want to, and I think what's happening based on your description, I don't know, talk with your therapist about this, is that you're avoiding your grief, which is normal. And maybe you need to do that for a while, but that isn't the long-term solution, obviously. It's a, that's a downgrade in your life. You deserve to cry occasionally the rest of your life and be heard by everyone close to you about your loss in this area. So grieve Allow yourself to grieve. You'll probably grieve this for the rest of your life, and that's okay. It sucks. It's not a happy ending, but you deserve to feel the feelings, and you deserve to be heard, and maybe that's your family. Maybe they need to hear that. Up to your patron, Daniela from New York, writes in and says, What are some helpful book recommendations and learning materials for those with borderline who struggle with interpersonal relationships? So far, I have read the attached book that you recommended and found it extremely insightful, but would love to delve deeper into other self-help materials for those like myself with significant attachment injuries. End of email. So I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I am terrible at cataloging uh, resources and books and whatnot. I'm, I'm just the worst. I'm probably the worst person I know when it comes to this. I feel like a lot of my colleagues and professors and other people... They, especially when you think about how much I talk about this topic, attachment and personality disorders, you'd think I would have something that I could recommend to people, but I just don't. <laughs> I'm just, uh, it's, and it's not out of laziness. It's just like, I don't know what it is about me. I just don't, I just don't know. So I don't know. I don't have book recommendations for anything. <laughs> now, if you're a clinician, I have some book recommendations because I'm always adding and subtracting books from my syllabi from the university and trying to fine tune that situation. You can go to the website and find books there. So I'm just sorry, Danielle, I, I failed you. All right. Anonymous upper tier patron from Europe writes in and says, 
is not clicking with your therapist a serious issue. I have currently been seeing a therapist in person for a year, but despite this, there is still no chemistry or much of a connection with her. Before this, I was seeing an online therapist, and I absolutely loved her. Sadly, she had to terminate years ago, which really broke my heart. My current therapist is not validating and seems a bit narrow-minded on some things. Things feel very bland with her at times. Is this a serious issue where I need to find a new therapist, or is this something that isn't much of a big deal? End of email. Well, anonymous supper to your patron from Europe. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've actually been there before as a client, and it's hard to say. Uh, you always just have to think, is it helping me? What's the alternative? How much of a pain in the butt would it be to find someone else? Would that other person... You know, it's it's like <laughs> being in a relationship with someone, you know, and you're a bit ambivalent. Well, maybe it's not like a, a, a romantic relationship. Anyway, point is, is that you had a really great relationship in the past, good chemistry, and now you're not having great chemistry. Well, where's that line, right? You know, I've had therapists in the past that have had not so great chemistry compared to other therapists. But, you know, I just sort of took it the good with the bad and found for myself that it was helpful overall, even though the chemistry wasn't really there. But I, I've had another therapist that I worked with for a short period of time, I think just five sessions, and there was zero chemistry. But I also got the sense that he wasn't really understanding me in terms of what I was saying. And so I terminated with him. So, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with terminating, but you just have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Because it, you might not actually find someone better. It might just be a lateral move. So from your description, I could see it going either way. So I'm sorry for not being of much help. <laughs> All right, next email is from upper tier patron Jamie from North Carolina. She writes, I'm getting my master's in social work and plan on becoming a licensed clinician who specializes in severe and persistent mental illness. Through internships, I've gained experience working with schizophrenia and borderline personality disorder, and I've noticed that most clinicians in these settings hold a psychology degree, a doctorate. Uh, do you think I'll be limited in this, special, in this specialty without furthering my education beyond a master's in social work? End of email. No, absolutely not. You can have a master's in social work and do a lot of great work with schizophrenia and borderline. Now, if you had other, if you had another degree or further education, would that help you getting a job? Yeah, possibly. But as you know, you hear me often say, ninety-nine percent of what I've learned has been after graduation, and uh, you know that's no joke. The, 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 and I always tell this to my students because my students will be really worried. It's like, wow, I've, you know, there's not enough time or I feel like I don't know anything. And I'm like, yeah, there's not enough time for you to know everything. This, this profession of psychotherapy is way too complex to learn even in like five years. It takes too long. It's, it takes years and years and years to really get a grasp on even a corner of this field. And so, um, so anyway, uh, getting more education, would that help? Yeah, maybe. But really, it's all a matter of experience. So get your master's in social work, focus on your issue, you know, try to gear your classes toward what you want to do. Find a supervisor that, that does what you're doing, that can mentor you, get jobs in that area, get expertise, and you'll be fine. Now, might some people look down on you because you only have a master's or it is in social work? Yeah, but they can go to hell. All right, next email, upper tier patron Lindy from Indiana writes in and says, my my bylaw, by the way, this is triggering, so, and all my episodes can have triggering material, but maybe this one particularly, so you might want to skip ahead. My biological father abused me physically and then killed himself when I was five years old. After that, my mom remarried. I never had a relationship with my stepdad, and he didn't try to talk to me very much. When I was going through puberty, he covered his eyes while talking to me so he wouldn't lust after me. During the first couple of months of my sexual experiences, I had flashbacks of possible molestation with my stepdad. He was heavily addicted to porn, and I'm wondering if it was child porn. Is it possible I was molested and forgot? If so, is there a way to get my memory back? End of email. Well, first off, Lindy, I would find a therapist because... 
when it comes to this kind of trauma, if you start to investigate it on your own, you could actually hurt yourself. So you really want to make sure you're with a therapist that really understands trauma very well. The second thing I'll say to answer your question is, is it possible that you were molested and quote unquote forgot? Yeah, absolutely. It happens all the time. There's a lot of different reasons why this happens. One is that it can happen when you're very, very young and it's hard to remember those experiences. Um, even when you're six and seven, it's hard to remember moments from then. Another reason why people forget is because, or kind of forget, is because memories are often made stronger by recall and talking about things. So most of the things we've been through in our life, we don't remember because we didn't bother to um, think about them afterwards or talk about them afterwards. And thus long-term memory wasn't established. So when one is abused, we are typically shamed. It's behind closed doors and there's no one to talk to about it because we don't know who to talk to. And obviously you don't want to think about it because it was an awful experience. And so although the memory might be kind of there because it was a, a significant moment, it's not very easily accessible uh, as an adult because you just haven't thought about it very often. So, uh, yeah, so there's various other reasons why we would, quote unquote, forget or repress or suppress a memory. Now, what I find, though, with people is they usually, not always, if they were actually abused and they go down a road in therapy to discover those memories, they come pretty quick. It doesn't usually take a long time. So, uh, for instance, someone might come in and say, oh, I'm starting to wonder if I was molested. And we start talking about it. And I say, well, what do you remember? And as soon as I create space for what they remember, and sometimes I have to do a lot of um, pre-work, you know, emotional regulation skills before we even talk about this. But usually right away, they're like, well, I remember, I kind of remember this. And then they talk about it a little bit more and they're like, yeah, this is what was happening. And so although it might be kind of a vague memory, they're pretty sure that something happened. It doesn't usually take years and years and years to dig and find it. Usually it, it's it's just behind a, a tiny little wall, if that makes any sense. So uh, there's that. On the other hand, I have worked with people who seem to exhibit a lot of uh, abuse syndromes as an adult. And there's a lot of red flags of abuse when they were a kid, but they have no memories of being abused as a kid. So sometimes I would conceptualize some people as absolutely having been abused and they don't have any access to those memories. Now, I have to be very careful about that, of course, because my profession has a history of inducing those kinds of syndromes in people and, you know, looking for abuse where it doesn't exist and then causing all kinds of legal problems. But uh, I have thought that before. I would never say I know they were abused, but I would say, oh, you know, I think they were. And it with a lot of the clients I worked with, it didn't matter if they remembered or not. We still worked on the issues that we saw them going through. You know, like, say a client is is an overly people pleaser and we conceptualize it as a part of their abusive history that they can't remember. Well, they don't need to necessarily remember the trauma they went through in order for us to work on their current people-pleasing, right? And the schemas involved, right? All right, this next email is from upper-tier patron Ronnie from San, or Rainey, Ronnie from San Francisco. Uh, she says, what contributes to feeling blocked in desire for your partner in an otherwise loving relationships? relationship? I have two examples of this. Currently, my avoidant partner struggles to feel desire for me the closer we get emotionally. And the second example is myself, who is preoccupied and anxious. In the past, I was blocked with a former partner after I cheated on him. In both instances, the partner will, without desire, still love the other, was committed to the relationship and wanted things to work, but didn't feel able to access sexual desire for the other, and in fact, didn't want to have sex at all. What's going on here? End of email. Yeah, uh, hard to know and a distressing event for sure. So you're saying that in one instance, your current partner, who is avoidant, struggles to feel sexual desire the closer you get emotionally. Well, that, of course, makes sense, right? Because the closer you get, the more scared he gets because it's frightening to be vulnerable. 
so there's that. And then you talk about being preoccupied and how you cheated on a former partner and then didn't want to have sex with him anymore. And yeah, uh, you know, there could be a lot of reasons for that. Um, uh, sexual attraction is a very confusing thing to us, right? <laughs> and a lot of things have to be uh, in alignment in order for us to to want to have sex with someone and to enjoy sex with someone. A lot, of, a lot, a lot, a lot of things. We have to feel safe. We have to feel desire. We have to trust the other person. We have to have good experiences with that person for the most part. So there's a lot of reasons why sexual desire will turn off. Um, and some people just have an, uh, a habitual, well, a tendency to stop having desire after a certain amount of time, you know, say a year into a relationship, for whatever reason, their libido just goes away. And, and, you know, there are things you can do, obviously, to try to improve it and to investigate the cause. But sometimes it's just, just, you know, just diminishes over time. And also, sometimes relationships can morph into, you know, from the beginning of the relationship where you're, it's all hot and heavy and you're staring into each other's eyes and you're obsessed with each other to a long-term relationship where you just, you know, you're just, you don't, you don't have sex with them, but you do really love each other and are committed and want to make things work. And for some people, that's fine. They're just like, well, I guess sex isn't really a thing anymore to us, but I still love you. I still enjoy you. I still love spending time with you. I still want to hold hands, but you know, I'm just I'm just not in the mood really very often. And if both people are cool with that, then totally fine. For other people, they're not cool with that. Um, they might have a difference in libido, or they might feel like they they don't want to they don't want to have that kind of relationship. For them, sexual attraction is very important to the meaning of a relationship, and they they don't want to be married to quote unquote their roommate or their best friend. They want to be married to someone that they're in love with and and have a lot of lust for. And so, you know, it can be very particular and very individual in terms of your life with that. But if I were to investigate anything, Ronnie, is to, uh, with your current partner anyway, go to couples therapy. And maybe if he were to feel more safe, to be more vulnerable, and the two of you can talk about libido changes and all the things that need to be discussed there. Maybe there's a there's a way to change that, but maybe not, you know, and, and maybe you don't need to change it. It's just up to you. All right. This next question is from anonymous upper tier patron. They write, I have a situation I want to run by you. A small boy that I know wakes up frequently and seeks his parents for comfort. The parents smoke weed after putting him to bed they also lock him in his room so he doesn't interrupt them while they're smoking weed. What impact can this have on a child? The mother also runs an unlicensed daycare. Can this also cause the child to become anxious? The boy is six and has begun to show signs of anxiety. End of email. Okay, so it's a bit difficult for me to comment on this. So you're saying that you you you're, you notice a boy who is six and has begun to show signs of anxiety. And you're trying to find out why, you know, what, why is the child showing signs of anxiety? And you're saying that you know that the parents smoke weed and they lock him in his room so that he doesn't interrupt him and that the mother has an unlicensed daycare, I'm guessing, in the home. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that those are factors in the child's anxiety, but uh, those those details wouldn't be the first things I would think of. Uh, usually I'm looking at attachment security and does does the child f- feel safe when the child is vulnerable, you know, emotional things. Parents smoking weed isn't necessarily a bad thing to a child, obviously. It's just like having a glass of wine at night and locking him in his room, you know, as long as the child is asleep and um, could knock on the door to let to let him out, which I'm assuming that the parents would be cool with. And and as long as the child doesn't perceive it as being in a prison or something, then that's probably not damaging, depending. And having a daycare, I mean, I, I don't know why I have to mention it's an unlicensed daycare, 
But I grew up with a daycare in my house, and uh, you know that actually uh, was very educational for me. I, I learned a lot about human nature watching my mom skillfully uh, manage ten four year olds. So you know, I, I don't know. Uh, it could be factors, but might not be. All right. This next email is from upper tier patron Georgia from Scotland. She writes. Hey, Kirk, I was wondering if you could discuss sex headaches on the podcast, as I've never heard it talked by anyone else. It's something I'm diagnosed with. I am from 20, I'm 23 from Scotland and have been sexually assaulted from my brother when I was a teen. And when I started having sex with my partner, originally all was well, until a few times in a row, just before the point of climax, I was hit with what felt like lightning. It felt like I'd been hit in the back of my head with an axe. This has made me feel extremely broken, like the assault from my brother truly broke me. I cannot enjoy sex as much as other people. It's made me very afraid of sex because I I never know if it's going to happen or not. End of email. Well, I'm really sorry that's happening to you, Georgia. That sounds truly awful. And yeah, I... I've I've heard about sex headaches before. Uh, there's a technical term for it. It's, it's coital cephalalgia. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that. But it's a, a known thing that happens to people. It's kind of rare, but uh, it happens to enough people that there's a thing and there's treatment for it and there's research on it. And yeah, you, you described it perfectly. It's extremely painful. And it, it's basically... Uh, it, it, you can think of it as a form of migraine, and but it's very particular, and it's around sex, usually around orgasm, and it's a very, very sharp pain to the back of the uh, head, and will uh, feel like it's a like it's a piercing through the front of your head. Kind of people will describe it that way, and it can be extremely painful, but also just demoralizing, right? Because sex is supposed to feel good, and you're trying to enjoy it with your partner, and. The, and then all of a sudden, boom, this thing just hits you and you're just like, oh, my God, I, I never want that to happen again. And so you kind of hold back in sex because you don't want to head towards orgasm. And um, a lot of men suffer from this as well. So it, it's awful. Now, you're connecting it with the abuse you went through, which is possible, but I, I didn't see any research connecting those two. So you're saying, you know, you feel broken, you know, you feel like your brother somehow broke you sexually. It's possible that you would have developed this regardless of, of what happened. Um, I don't know. And they don't know why people develop this. But I, I didn't see any research connecting this with childhood you know, sexual trauma. The other thing is, is there are treatments for it. There are medications you can take. Um, there might even be like relaxation techniques you can use. So if you you know can i i would seek out a specialist in this area who can um maybe try out some things but uh, that's just truly awful i mean even experimenting with some treatments would be awful cuz you're like well i'm taking this medication will it work what if it doesn't work i i, I don't want to have two days of utter pain just because i'm trying to enjoy sex with my partner what's happening but I didn't read your whole email, but you talked a bit about how you you know you've been demoralized by this whole experience. You're 23. You, you have a, a lot of life ahead of you. I would look into the treatments, and also there's some research that says it just will go away. That for some people it lasts you know, for a month or for a couple of years, and it just it just goes away. They they don't know why it happens. So I would be optimistic about it. I would not consider yourself broken. I would obviously get treatment for both things, you know, both the sex headaches and the trauma that you went through. And, um, you know, don't don't consider yourselves to be broken because you're absolutely not. All right. This next email is from patron Esmond from Minneapolis. He writes in and says, did you know that a study found that Asian Americans are the least likely ethnic group in the United States to seek therapy due to cultural norms and stigmas? As uh, So to answer that question, yes, I did know that. Um, as an Asian American and a psychologist, does this surprise or disappoint you? Uh, technically speaking, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, just chiming in on that one. But um, as an Asian American, does this surprise me? Not really, because I've known about it a long time. And not only is there a lot of stigma around mental health uh, in general, I will say, because there's a, you know, when, you're, when we're talking about Asian Americans, we're... We're talking about 
millions of people. So from various different countries, you know, I've said this before that to describe some Americans as from, you know, even East Asia, we're talking about somewhere on the order of one and a half billion people or something. And especially if we say, if we include South Asians, now we're talking about literally half of the world population. So, you know, because often Indians are also called Asian Americans, right? So to say that Asian Americans do this or Asian Americans do that is one of the silliest things you could ever say because Asia, you know, East Asia plus South, Southeast Asia and South Asia, the cultures there are so diverse. <laughs> and Americans just kind of, uh, white Americans just think of them all as the same. You know, Japan is extremely different from the Philippines, which is extremely different from Bangladesh, which is extremely different from Hong Kong, you know. So um, there's different uh, levels of stigma. But one of the things we can say is that for uh, white Americans, the stigma isn't as strong as it is for other groups of people. But anyway, so does it surprise me? No. Does it disappoint me? No. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't, that's not one of those things that, I get disappointed by necessarily. And you also ask, how can Asian Americans that want therapy overcome the stigma? Well, if anyone wants therapy and they're experiencing stigma as a barrier, then they should maybe talk to people who've been to therapy and listen to this podcast maybe too. I mean, I would hope (laughs) that by now, if you listen to the podcast, that therapy has been destigmatized. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but... I don't think you can listen to this podcast for very long without all of the stigma, or at least 90% of it, just being washed away. Because, I don't know, we especially the episodes with Bob and stuff. Like, um, So, you know, listening to this podcast, other podcasts, you know, talking to people, maybe going on Reddit. There are therapy subreddits that you can uh, read other people talking about their experiences in therapy, or you could post a thing like, how do I overcome the stigma? Um but, you know, if you want therapy, you just go. Uh, is there stigma? Yeah. I mean, when I went to therapy, I went to therapy when I was 19 years old and in, in um, 19, 1989 or 1990 or something. It would have been 1990, I guess. And I was a frat guy. I was in a fraternity at the University of Washington and no one was talking about their feelings and no one was talking about going to therapy. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. I only knew one guy that had been to therapy. I didn't know a single other person who admitted they'd been to therapy, but, and there was a lot of stigma, but I just went because I don't, you know, I, I, what is it that I think, I think I'm, I think I'm just, I feel like I'm more important than stigma, (laughs) you know, like my happiness is more important than stigma. So you just had to value yourself and just say like, "Ah, screw the stigma. Sure. I might be stigmatized. Sure. I might be, I might feel a little bit of, social shame as I'm leaving the therapy office, but screw that noise. All right. This next email is from patron Juliet from Quebec. She writes in and says, I was wondering if depending on your cultural background, would you have different kinds of paranoias when it came to schizophrenia and hallucinations? For example, instead of the FBI spying on you, it would be a demon or another organization, depending on where you're from. Also, are there differences in the kinds of hallucinations? Is there research on this topic? End of email. Yeah, there is research on this topic. And yes, there are differences in the kinds of psychosis or hallucinations or delusions that people have depending on the culture. And you identify some some uh, good ones that actually you find. Like in some societies, you find that they will be paranoid about the government watching them. And in another society, you'll find more religious types of, of delusions and, and hallucinations like demons, this sort of thing, for sure. And I'm not an expert in this area, but I seem to remember research demonstrating that in the United States, people who have delusions and persecutory delusions tend to be much more negative. And they're, when they hear voices, they tend to be much more negative than the sort of voices that people hear in other societies. And uh, there's some speculation as to why that is, that our society is more fragmented, there's more judgment. And, and so we, as Americans, when we have a break from reality, since we all kind of have a, a, 
an an ongoing self hatred that has been acquired from our society. It 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 sort of latches on to the delusion, and and our delusions tend to be more negative overall. Uh, again, I'm not an expert, and I could be talking out of my butt, but. All right. Well, it is late. It's very late and I should probably go to bed and I'm starting to feel like I can't think straight. (laughs) So uh, let's just call it a night. And thank you for emailing in everyone. And thank you for being who you are. And remember that you're a good person and you're, you try hard to be a good person and you try hard to be good to those around you, and you try hard to get your needs met, and sometimes you make mistakes, but that's okay. And sometimes you lose your temper, and that's okay. And sometimes you give the silent treatment because you're secretly angry and you don't know what to do, and that's okay. We're all doing our best, and don't shame yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. (laughs) 